Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry, as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the editor at large at slashfilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Agent Barkley in the FX original series Justified, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? Very good, sir, especially at the mention of Agent Barkley, uh, one of several FBI agents I played. Uh, for this, for this agent, I actually decided to do some research because I love the show Justified so much. And the fellow who grew up down the street from me when I was a little kid actually grew up to be an FBI agent. So I tracked him down and I asked him all sorts of questions about what FBI agents really do. But there is a huge difference between real FBI agents and TV FBI agents. When you're a TV FBI agent, one of the most important things in your life is your costume, is the suit. That's what you do first. And I got measured for my suit. Everything looked beautiful. I was extremely sharp looking. But then on the set, they add the gun. And adding the gun completely changes the fit of a European cut suit. It kind of makes you look like you have a hernia, a hiatal hernia, kind of high up. Uh, when you're a kid, you think it's going to be fun having a gun in a part. But in reality, for all you young actors out there, it's not fun because when you sit down, the gun presses into your side and makes part of your leg go numb. Well, I'm grateful that you were able to survive that ordeal unscathed, Stephen. Uh, speaking of surviving ordeals unscathed, you have been doing so much traveling recently, haven't you? I mean, between the book that's based on the podcast slash radio show coming out called The Dangerous Animals Club, plus your new role in The Mindy Project, which is a Fox sitcom that's premiering in September, you have just been all over the country these days, haven't you? David, we're going to have to time travel backwards uh, to get this sequence of events right. I don't think I've ever traveled so much in my life. First of all, I was invited to do an autograph signing for, for Glee, which was remarkably fun in Birmingham, England. Uh, I went with Max Adler and Kurt Mega and Ashley Fink, and we met about 300 of the most enthusiastic Glee fans you would ever want to meet. They were so enthusiastic, they traveled all the way to Birmingham, England, just to see you. It's I, 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 yes, they, they, I think I, something like that. But they dressed up in costumes to, to meet us. So there were a lot of people that were dressed up like Kurt, and there were a lot of people that were dressed up like Max, a lot of people dressed up like Ashley. But Dave, there weren't a lot of people dressed up like Sandy Ryerson. I, I don't understand it. Well, Stephen, there was one time we performed live uh, in Boston, and someone did come dressed like you, and it was it was quite a, a frightening experience, if you'll recall. So <laughs> yes, I recall it was I, right. But 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 wait, we have to we have to go in time travel order. While I was in England, uh, what, what the Glee convention put me up at was at, at an abbey, a cloister of, for nuns. That, that dated all the way back hundreds and hundreds of years, and they had knights and suits and shining armor in the hallway. It was an amazing, amazing uh, experience. First of all, let me tell you that. But let's time travel backwards. While I had the Glee invitation, was going out to Glee, I got a second invitation, also for England, but in a different part of England, which happened to be five days before the Glee experience, and it was in a place called Edale. Have you ever heard of Edale? Never heard of Edale, sir. It sounds like some place out of Lord of the Rings, though. Yeah, it was uh, hobbits, sheep, uh, cheese, 
and the Moors, David, the Moors. Uh, it is one of the most picturesque places I've ever seen. And I was invited to come and do a seminar for a writer's convention. Uh, not a convention, more like a writer's group, a seminar group. And then afterwards perform for the Duke and Duchess of Devonshire. And David, we performed in their – what do they call it in England? A palace? A castle? I don't know what they call it. It was huge. It was huge. The The house itself was bigger than it's, – it's like bigger than the Seattle airport. Their house was bigger than the Seattle airport. That I know. And it, it, you needed an elevator to go to the men's room. They used this house – to shoot, I believe, Pride and Prejudice. Queen Victoria danced in their ballroom, and the Duke and Duchess had their own proscenium theater inside that held like 200 people. So I did a reading of a news story there. And this is one thing that I found was very interesting about reading the story, because I was, you know, a lot of my stories are very personal with live back in America. Everybody in England got everything. It didn't matter that the references were particularly American and very Texan, everybody got everything. And it kind of emphasizes a, a belief I have that, uh, David, we're all one big family. Indeed, sir. Indeed. Uh, and speaking of Texas, I believe you were there recently as well, right? Oh, well, that wasn't, that was not, that was not for uh, business. That was personal. Um, I went back to see my father. Uh, to see how dad was doing. But David, uh, I'd like to go back to Dallas to visit dad. And it's interesting going back to your hometown over a period of, of time. You know, I went back to Dallas on this last trip and I was surprised to find that most of it was gone. Now, don't get me wrong. The city was there. No question about it. It said so on my plane ticket. They sold cowboy jerseys and barbecue in the terminal. The final proof was on the drive back to the house from the airport. Nothing says Dallas more than the first time you're almost run off the road. I'm not sure why people in Dallas are such bad drivers. Maybe it's because they confuse the accelerator with the turn signal. Or maybe it's the local custom that brakes are only to be applied in extreme emergencies, usually right before the impact. The only hand signal people use is the finger. I lived there for the first 25 years of my life, and, and I know for a fact there is no reason to be in such a hurry. It will all still be there tomorrow. Or maybe it won't. In acting, one has to find ways to understand a character quickly. I've always depended on divining what is a character's greatest hope and what is their greatest fear. And that works very, very well for getting a quick, usable sketch on what motivates a person. But there is another. Over a period of time, what has remained constant and what has changed? This test is not only useful in understanding a life, it also helps in understanding a city. When I came home to Dallas this time, it was not the familiar, but the change that made its mark on me. The first morning I got back, got up early, made my ritual pilgrimage to Starbucks. As I headed across the parking lot, I made a quick scan of the neighborhood from 40 years ago. And there was something very wrong with this picture. The Mrs. Baird's bread factory had been torn down. In its place was a large amount of nothing surrounded by a chain-link fence. For decades, Mrs. Baird stood next to the Quickie Mart where I used to buy Andre's cold duck before a date. Side note. Back in 1970, 
Bick Ferguson advised me to buy cold duck. He assured me the girls loved to drink it. Even though Bick was the gayest man I've ever known, I believed everything he said. There was a time-tested wisdom in his advice. Bick said that cold duck was a combination of champagne and red wine, a little class and a little trash, just what you wanted on a date. I never had enough dating experience to determine if Bick was right. Now I'll never know. The quickie mart was gone as well. I went into the Starbucks and ordered an herbal tea and asked the girl behind the counter when Mrs. Baird's got torn down. She gave me a world-weary expression only a 19-year-old with a summer job can muster. What's Mrs. Baird's? I pointed out, well, there, there was a factory right across the street. There was? Yeah, yeah, they made bread. Oh, that's cool, she said. Oh, you have no idea. They would bake all night. I was in drama school back in the 1970s. We'd finish rehearsal at 11 o'clock or midnight. The cast and crew would walk back to their dorms with the air filled with the most wonderful smell of fresh-baked bread. The Starbucks girl smiled blankly. No one else was in line behind me, so I kept talking. One night, my girlfriend Beth and I decided to check it out. We headed for Mrs. Baird's. We walked up to the front door. All the lights were on, but the place looked empty. I rang the buzzer. Nothing. We're about to head back to the dorms when a woman in an apron comes out from the back. She saw us and waved like we were old friends. We waved back. She opened the front door and asked if we would like a tour. I mentioned that it was almost 1 a.m. She said it was a perfect time for a tour. Things were slow. I looked at Beth, who was positively beaming. She gave me the thumbs up. The tour it was. The woman was thrilled. She took us inside. She gave us a brief history of Mrs. Baird. She took us back to where the ingredients were mixed, the vats stirred, baking pans prepped where the ovens roared, and the bread cooled. At the end of the tour, our hostess took two hot loaves and wrapped them in foil. She handed one to Beth, one to me, then took out a gigantic knife and cut the bread open. It steamed with that thick, sweet aroma. She put a whole stick of butter in each loaf where it promptly melted. The woman thanked us for coming on the tour and told us we were welcome to come back any night after 11. I thanked her for the bread, but politely mentioned that there was no way I could eat a whole loaf of white bread with a stick of butter all by myself. The woman laughed and said, Well, eat what you want, honey. Save the rest for breakfast. Beth and I finished our loaves in ten minutes. Then we started licking the foil. To this day, it was the best thing I have ever eaten. We revisited the woman on several occasions and brought friends. She always thanked us for taking the tour. The Starbucks girl's face was as unmoved as a pond in summer. She clearly had not understood anything I said. I did not enlighten or amuse. I had only taken a step closer to becoming one of those old guys who always talks about a war you didn't even know was fought. I thanked her for the drink and headed for the door. The girl called out, Oh, I'm sorry. I never asked you if you wanted anything to eat with your tea. I stopped. My mind went on a short excursion of infinite distance. I had difficulty finding an answer. She restated, You know, we have coffee cake, donuts, pastries. If I had been on stage, you could have called it a Chekhovian pause. Unfortunately, I was in Starbucks, where my inability to answer just seemed peculiar. Finally, I managed a simple, I know. I know about the cinnamon rolls. 
Thank you. Not now. I got in the car. I sat in silence for a second, thinking. And then I headed back to the house to see if Dad needed to go on any chores. Dad was almost 90, blind. He had difficulty walking, but don't let that fool you. He was always up at 4 and 5 in the morning. He got his newspaper and retired to his bedroom. There he turned on his machine. The machine looked like an overhead projector we had in high school to show slides. It was made for the near blind. It had a bright light and extreme magnification. Dad would take the stock pages and slide it under the viewer. The letters and numbers would appear on the screen about head high, and he would move his face to an inch or so from the image and try to make out the changes in his fortunes. Dad saved chores for when I came into town, like buying batteries for his talking watch or going to the hard candy store to buy pounds of sugar-free treats. The man who ran the store was a big fan of Deadwood, and Dad liked to thrill him with my presence. I got back to the house. Dad asked how I liked Starbucks. I told him it was fine. He asked how much a coffee was. I told him. He said, yikes. I said, I know, I know. He said in his day, coffee was a nickel, and you got all you wanted. It was a bottomless cup. I told him I remembered when it was a dime. But I didn't get coffee. I got tea. He asked me how much that was. I told him. He said, yikes, again. He asked if I got any sweet rolls. He remembered I used to get sweet rolls. I got caught again. I told him, no, I don't get sweet rolls anymore. Dad asked how long I was staying on this trip. I told him until Thursday. He said that was good. He had something at the bank he needed to show me. I told him I was available for whatever he needed. He said we could go over later today. They put out free popcorn. I told him I wasn't doing anything. Whenever he wanted to head over there was fine. I asked if he needed me to read over anything for him or to sign papers. He said no, not right now. We headed out to exercise. Dad used to be a physician at SMU. As a retirement benefit, he was given free access to the Deadman Health Center. Whenever I came home, we'd spend about 40 minutes a day walking around various pieces of exercise equipment. It was exhausting, but it wasn't as bad as actually using the things. I'd been thrown off several treadmills in my time. Now, in my post-broken neck, broken sternum world, I was not so eager to push my pedal to the metal. After a lifetime of dodging bullets, you get a lot more respect for the bullets. And the dodging. After exercise, Dad and I headed back to the car. It hurt me to watch him walk. Each step seemed excruciating. The joint in his knee had given out on him years ago, and now his lower right leg was bent outward at a 20-degree angle. The only thing he did with ease was fall down, which he did with increasing regularity. It was nature's way of saying, watch more television. His blindness was nature's way of saying, oh, sorry, you're screwed. Whenever people say they love nature, I suspect they haven't lived with her. I asked Dad if he wanted to head back to the house. He pressed his talking watch. The female robot voice said, 9.53. Dad said we could head over to the bank. It would probably be open. We could take care of that business next. We headed down Mockingbird. Off to my right was Ownby Stadium. Ownby was where the SMU Mustangs played football when they weren't serving lifetime suspensions from the NCAA. I stopped the car. It was unrecognizable. 
It had been completely redone. It used to look like a football stadium. Now it looked like Orlando, Florida. Somewhere amidst the rows of air-conditioned skyboxes, I figured there was still a football field somewhere. Dad asked me why we stopped. I said, this is Ownby, right? Dad said it was. They had rebuilt it over the last couple years. He heard it was really fancy now. I was sabotaged by a memory. Ownby Stadium. The real Ownby Stadium, or at least the Ownby that still exists in my mind, had a lot of meaning for me. It was where Beth and I had one of our first dates. She wanted to sneak out of her dorm and sleep on top of the press box one night. She thought that seemed romantic. I was terrified. I thought it could lead to sex or arrest. I was unfamiliar with both. But I didn't want to let her down. I instinctively knew it's better to disappoint your partner later in a relationship. The stadium was surrounded by an eight-foot cyclone fence. I climbed it easily. I was eager to demonstrate for Beth my athletic prowess. When I jumped down inside the stadium, I discovered the grounds were patrolled by two free-range German shepherds. They came tearing out of the darkness after me. Then I got to demonstrate even more athletic prowess. I moved as fast as a man in 501 jeans could move. I sat in the car, smiling at the thought of the dogs and Beth, and finally reaching the top of the press box, unscathed. But my memory was interrupted by a far more ancient memory of Onby. It was 1960. I was nine years old. Our family lived in Oak Cliff, about 22 miles outside of Dallas proper. There was big news. A professional football team announced they were going to practice at Onby. This was huge. Dallas didn't have a football team yet, but it did have tons of football fans. One of them was my brother Paul. Paul ate, drank, and dreamed football. He was a receiver on the Lions Club team. He played in the final game with a broken finger. The coach taped it to his good fingers to serve as a splint. He still caught a touchdown pass. When Paul heard that a professional team was passing through Dallas, the lure was too great. He asked Dad if we could drive out to see him. I can't say for certain if Dad was irritated and having to take his day off and drive across town to park outside of Ombi Stadium in the hopes of getting to see a real football team. But I salute him. He loaded up Paul and me and took to the highway. We parked by SMU and walked to Ownby Stadium. We were greeted with the grim news that the practice was closed. No observers. Only people with press passes could enter the sanctuary. Just as we started to head back to the car, the side doors under Ownby opened and a group of very large men headed for the bus with their hand luggage. Paul screamed, It's them! It's them! Dad stopped. It's them, all right. We'll get a good look. Paul was not to be denied. He knelt down and said, Stevie, you have to get their autographs. I said, me? He said, you. You're just a little kid. No one will say no to you. Walk up, be polite, say, excuse me, sir, I'm a big fan. May I have your autograph? They'll either give it to you or they'll throw you out. Dad said, Paul, the practice is closed. I don't want anyone getting into trouble. He won't get into trouble, Dad. He's just a little kid. I looked up to Dad and said, I'll do it. Paul said, quick, give him something to write with. Dad reached into his pocket and pulled out a pad of prescription slips and a pen. He gave them to me and said, better hurry before they get on the bus. I took the prescription pad and I ran towards that line of players headed for the bus. I ran past the security guards and the police. I ran past men with suits and cameras. I ran up to a giant man and said, excuse me, sir. 
I've always admired you. May I have your autograph? The man laughed and bent down and said, Sure, son. He signed the prescription slip. I looked at it. It said Ray Nitschke. Never heard of him. I thanked him. I turned the page and moved on to the next. I smiled and used my Sunday manners, and I got another pleasant smile. The man bent down and wrote, Jim Taylor. Then another, Paul Hornig. Ron Kramer. Tom Moore. Bart Starr. Finally, a big man with horn-rimmed glasses stood in front of me laughing. He said, Hey, kid, you got some moxie. I asked him what that was. He grinned and said, It's guts. It's nerve. Were you afraid of walking up here? Yes, sir. And you still came? Yes, sir. Why? Because my brother asked me to. He laughed hard and bent down and looked at me eye to eye. That's a good boy. Always listen to your brother. I guess you want my autograph, too. I had no idea who the man was, but he sure did, so I said, Yes, sir, please. He took the prescription pad and signed. I looked at the page. Vince Lombardi. I never knew what happened to that prescription pad. My memory was interrupted by the voice of the lady robot on Dad's talking watch. 10.03. The bank's open now, Dad said. We can go. I started the car up. I said, Dad, do you remember when we came here and got the autographs of the Green Bay Packers? Well, I remember something about it now that you mention it. I was afraid we'd all get arrested. But we didn't, I said. No, thank goodness. You know, I can't remember anything anymore, Stephen. I used to have a good mind. Now it's all gone. Yes, sir. Well, let's go to the bank. They have free popcorn. So I've heard, Daddy-O. So I've heard. Dad told me the only good part of being blind was that he got a handicap pass for the car. Typical. As soon as he can't drive, they tell you you could park anywhere you want. We pulled right in front of the bank. I sat around to help Dad out of the car. With his bad knee, walking had become an extreme sport, but moving from one level to another was summiting Everest. I steadied him. He wobbled, grimaced, stood upright. Through his clenched teeth, he said, I'm fine. Let's go. We entered the bank. It seemed like all of the tellers and officers knew him. Lots of smiles. One woman said, Hello, Dr. Tobolowski. Good to see you again. Another waved, Hello, doctor. I laughed. Hey, you're famous, Dad. Oh, they're real nice to me here. Very friendly. See if they have any popcorn or hard candy. There should be free hard candy in a bowl on a table. I looked around the lobby for the hard candy table. I found it and I grabbed a few assorted flavors. I ran back to Dad with my haul. He popped one in his mouth and said, I'll see if they have any popcorn. They have free popcorn. Right, I said. I went to the woman who greeted Dad when we came in. She wore a blue suit and was the only person working there who wasn't wearing a sticker that said, Ask me about a home loan, which made me think she was in charge and would know about popcorn. 
She smiled sweetly and said, Ah, Dr. Tobolowski, he loves his popcorn. No, we don't put that out until around 11. You could come back then. I thanked her and broke the news to Dad. He said we would come back later. I asked if he needed to go to the teller's window. He said, not now. He had something he needed to show me. Dad pointed to a stairway at the back of the bank. We headed towards it, Dad limping on his bad leg. We began the ascent. He groaned with each step. I asked if he needed help. He said he was fine. He said we just needed to keep going. We got to the top of the stairs. There was a long hallway that seemed to vanish into darkness. There were no offices. There were no lights. I asked Dad if he was sure we were in the right place. The entire floor seemed deserted. He smiled knowingly and said, Oh, it's here. Just you wait. You'll see. As Dad struggled down the hallway, I could make out a shape of something in the darkness. We got closer, but I still had no idea what I was looking at. There was a metal plate on the floor and a metal arm that extended vertically about waist-high with a dial on it. What is it, Dad? It's a scale. A scale? Yes. I think this building used to be a warehouse of some kind, and the loading dock was back here. This must have been the shipping scale. The bank never uses this part of the building. The scale was still here, but that's not what I wanted to show you. Watch this. Dad stepped on the scale. Can you read what the scale says? Yes, sir. I leaned over and read the dial. 165 pounds. 165? Yes, sir. Dad laughed. See? That's it, Stephen. When I weigh at the health center, I weigh 175, maybe 176, almost every time. This scale weighs you light. What? The scale weighs you light. I normally weigh 175. This scale says I weigh 165. That's why we came here? Yeah. What do you think of that? Well, Dad, I, I think the scale is broken. It's not broken. It weighed me. But it weighed me light. You get on the scale. Oh, it's all right, Dad. I believe you. No, no, no. Go ahead. I climbed on. Dad asked eagerly, What do you weigh? I looked at the dial. 205. What do you normally weigh? 215. You see? Right, Dad. It's broken. The scale doesn't work like it should. But think about all the times I worried about my weight. I could have come here and weighed myself and I wouldn't have worried. It would have felt good. I don't know, Dad. The scale is broken. It just would have said you weigh less. What you need to do now is find a scale in town that weighs you heavy, like 300 pounds. Then when you go to the health center, you'll be relieved. No, Stephen, no, you don't understand. I don't want to weigh more. I want to weigh less. Whenever you get worried about your weight, you should just come here. I see your point, Dad, but it's a long way to drive for a broken scale. You don't know that. You don't know that it's broken. This one could be right. No, no, no. I got it. I got it. I've just never been that interested in what I weigh. Really? How is that possible? I don't know, sir. I don't know. I just guess I'm lucky. Shall we go home now? Sure. We could come back later and get some popcorn. We never made it back for the popcorn. The rest of the day I spent on a rescue mission. I went through our drawers and closets looking for any traces of my past I wanted to keep and ship back to Los Angeles. I found a pair of rainbow-painted wooden clogs I wore for the dance number in Godspell. That was in 1975. 
right before I went to the University of Illinois. At the back of my closet, I found two paintings Beth and I did when we moved in together. I still remember that afternoon. We bought paints and two canvases. Beth thought we should give painting a try on the off chance we were born geniuses. We weren't. That evening, Dad and I watched Deal or No Deal. If you don't remember the show, it was the most popular program in America for about six months. Contestants try to win a million dollars. After each round, they're offered money to quit playing. Dad loved the show. It didn't require vision, only experience. Dad was still talking about the discovery of the broken scale. At commercial break, he wondered how long it had been sitting there. Decades, probably. And it still worked. He shook his head and said it just wasn't fair. When he retired, he had visions of going to sporting events, plays, of going to the opera with Uncle Nathan. Now he was blind and he can't enjoy any of it. I felt terrible, but truthfully a part of me was pondering on the magnetic power of the future to create delusions. Dad hated the opera. He had no use for classical music. I think my piano recitals did him in. In the best of times, he tolerated a very narrow range of music, one or two degrees on either side of Perry Como. Deal or No Deal came back on. The studio audience was going wild over the decision the contestant had to make. Dad asked me what was happening. I told him that the woman had been offered $140,000 to make the deal. She had to decide on whether she was going to take the money or keep playing. He asked what the board looked like. I told him that she had a couple big numbers left, but it was iffy. Dad shook his head and said, She's going to lose everything. They always do. People get so greedy. I went to bed early that night. I was exhausted. Before I went to sleep, I called Anne. I told her about Mrs. Baird's bread and the scale that weighs you light. I told her I loved her, just for safety's sake. You never know when you run out of chances. The next morning I headed to Starbucks. I got my $2 tea and decided I was brave enough to face the new incarnation of my hometown. Maybe something from my past was still here. The drama department I knew at SMU was gone. Now there was a gigantic three-story building where the parking lot used to be. It was called the Theater Library. When I was a student, the Theater Library was comprised of three shelves of books in Tony Graham White's office. I headed down McFarland Boulevard in search of the flea apartment Beth and I lived in. All of the old, ugly apartments had been torn down and replaced by huge, ugly, modern apartments. Except for ours. Yes. It was hard for me to believe, but the flea apartment was still there. It was the only building on the block that hadn't been touched. Maybe the ground was still toxic from all the bug spray Mom and I used there, and the EPA would have placed a moratorium on new construction. I cruised over to Snyder Plaza. The grocery store where I was held hostage at gunpoint was still there. It had a new name. Big surprise. I went inside. Unrecognizable. 
Everything had been rearranged. The mangoes were on the opposite side of the store. The wine and chicken were in different places. I wondered if the events of that day would have happened in the new layout. Was catastrophe a simple mixture of bad luck and geometry? I went home to pick up Dad to take him to the health center. He was going over the sports pages on his big machine. He said he'd be ready in a minute. I walked around the living room. I sensed there was something different. I couldn't figure out what it was. All the furniture was in place. All the family pictures were still propped up on every possible horizontal surface. The magazines on the coffee table were exactly the same ones that were there when Mom died. I'm sorry, that sounds very Dickensian. It's also misleading. They were the same magazines that were there a year before Mom died. There hadn't been new magazines on the coffee table in years. I mentioned to Dad that I was going to throw them out. I couldn't read about the death of Paul Newman or the problem in George Bush's cabinet anymore. Dad got upset and told me to leave them be. At first, I thought, being a doctor, he was used to having old magazines in the waiting room. But then I thought it might be the tip of a pathological iceberg. I asked Dad why he wanted the old magazines on the table. He said so people could read them. I said no one was going to read them. They were years old. I could buy new ones. He said he didn't want me spending good money on new magazines. He was blind and couldn't read them anyway. I asked then why have them there at all. He said, to make people think we read magazines. It was Dickensian after all. In spite of Dad's protests, I thought I could swap them out one at a time. He would never know. While he was finishing up with his machine, I grabbed the most offensive magazine. It was a Sports Illustrated with Shaquille O'Neal's face on the cover in a Lakers jersey. It wasn't that I found Shaq or the Lakers offensive. It was just that over the years, people who chewed gum kept tearing off bits of the cover to wrap their chiclets in before tossing them away. Now the cover was so shredded, it was just depressing. On the way to the trash, I saw the room from another angle. I saw what was different. Mom's pennies were gone. Since I graduated from college, Mom developed a custom of saying little silent prayers for things and then putting a penny on a bookcase. Over the years, our bookcases in our house became covered with pennies, along with a few nickels and quarters for the big prayers. I asked Mom, after she recovered from her first heart attack, if she remembered what the prayers were for. Good things, she said. What good things, I asked. For you and Paul and Barbie. I said, do you remember one in particular? Mom shook her head. Oh, no, Stephen, there are too many. I would wish you would get a part you told me about, or that Paul would get a new secretary in the office, or that Barbie would get a good grade on a paper. There were lots of them. And why did you put the penny down? Oh, to tell God that I meant it. Did it work? Mom looked confused for a moment and then said, Must have. You're here. You all have grown up to be such good children. It must have worked. But, but if I went up to a certain penny, Mom, and asked what this wish was for, would you know? Mom shook her head with certainty. Oh, no, Stephen, there are too many. That's why I tell God. After I put the penny down, it's up to him to remember. I went into Dad's room and asked him where Mom's pennies were. He said he asked Valerie, the woman who helps him during the week, to keep the place clean. And she said it was too hard to dust with all the pennies on the furniture, so he told her to get rid of them. It made me sad that Mom's prayers were discarded so swiftly to facilitate an effective pass with lemon-scented pledge. 
But the world is not shaped by the swiftest or the strongest. It's not the person with great faith or great wisdom who makes their voices heard. It's made by the person who happens to be at the front of the line when the doors are opened and the man inside calls out, Next! I remember the words of my old rabbi, Meyer Schimmel. He said the end of most people's lives is filled with grief and hardship. and We do a disservice to their memories if we dwell on those times. It's a false vision of who they were and what they contributed. I think of Rabbi Schimmel often, especially when I visit Dallas. Dad and I headed for the health center. We walked around the aerobic equipment for about 40 minutes. He weighed himself, 175. He shook his head and said, We'll stop by the bank later. When we left, he asked me to take him to Starbucks. He wanted to see what was so special about the place. He said, Your mother used to love it when you took her there. I was surprised by the request, but it was better than going to the bank. We walked into Starbucks. I got a tea and asked Dad if he wanted anything. He asked how much it cost. The girl told him. He shook his head and said, Oh, gosh, no, never. She asked me if I wanted anything to eat with my tea. I stared once more at the glass case with the remains of the morning's pastries. The same memory came back. We all thought the biggest problem with Mom was not her heart, but Alzheimer's. It began slowly. She forgot names. She forgot places. I knew when she didn't read anymore there was a real problem, because Mom loved to read. She always had a book in her hand. But she was still cheerful and filled with energy, so we just let things be. As Dad lost his vision, Mom became his eyes. She was the only one who could drive. It didn't seem like a good idea. We mentioned to Dad that maybe we should bring someone in to help around the house. Dad fought the idea. He argued it was an intrusion. He didn't want a stranger in the house. It was unsafe. Being blind, he would have no way of protecting his credit cards or bank accounts from would-be thieves. On another level, Dad was angry. You live your life thinking you are the little pig building your house of bricks. Instead, you discover too late in the game you were only building a castle of sand at low tide. One day, Mom went to the store and she didn't come back. She was lost. It was a shot across the bow that the house of cards was falling. We had no answers. At one point, there was a suggestion we take her to the vet to implant a microchip. This was not meant as a joke. During that time, before her heart attack, I flew home often. I tried to help out with the chores. Mom seemed the same. She was strong, funny, concerned. But her mind wasn't working. It made me sick and sad when I grasped how much of her was already gone. One of our concerns was she would never eat. I developed a strategy. When I woke up, I would take her out for a morning drive. I always ended up at Starbucks for coffee and a Danish. I figured if I could get her to eat a sweet roll, which she loved, it would be better than nothing. But it wasn't easy. She had a suspicion that people were trying to feed her, and she didn't like that at all. I bought a coffee and several pastries. This always amused the girls behind the counter. They made jokes about everything from my sweet tooth to the possibility that I was pregnant. And they were right. In a way, I was eating for two. I would take a bite out of a cake, make a face, and ask Mom what she thought was in it. Her desire to help me often outweighed her will not to eat. And she would take a bite out of the questionable sweet roll, think it over, and say, Stephen, I taste orange. 
This must be a kind of orange cream. It's very good. And then I would take a bite from a different one and would laugh and say, Oh, this tastes like granny cinnamon cake to me. Mom would reach for it. She took a bite. Or two. She closed her eyes in pleasure and then smiled and shook her head. No. My mom's was better. She used more butter. And on and on we would go, and eventually she had breakfast. The best part was that Mom never remembered the trip to Starbucks, so it worked just as well the next morning. I had no idea at the time I had built a monument to this ruse. It was impossible to forget. No matter what Starbucks I went to anywhere in the world, I would always be reminded of Mom whenever the girl behind the counter asked me if I needed a Danish. In a way, the world was answering my fear that everything was vanishing. The pastries at Starbucks were offering me a clue that more remained than was apparent to the eye. I went back home for another night of deal or no deal. During the commercials, Dad told me about his early days of his practice. He said between October of 1951 and April of 1953, he had an office near Beckley and Davis with Dr. Edgar Loomis, an older pediatrician. He had to work hard to make any living at all. He was one of the last doctors in the area who would make house calls, day or night. I told him I remembered him taking all of us kids in our pajamas to a sick woman's house at 2 a.m. I thought it was exciting to see other miserable people in the middle of the night. Dad shook his head and said, I traded away a lot, Stephen. I lost some of Paul's childhood and all of yours and all Barbie's to make a living. I regret it now, but I had to do it. Using the stratagem of defining character by what changes and what remains the same, the one constant always seems to be regret. We are defined by the objects of our regret. For Dad, his regret, unfortunately, was also his purpose, his devotion to his wife and children, a subject worthy of tragedy. The next morning I arose from unremarkable but unpleasant dreams. I got dressed, and before I knew it, I was in Mom's car headed for Starbucks. I stood in line, groggily. The girls taking orders were working in pairs to accommodate the morning caffeine rush. When I got to the front of the line, a cheery girl, even younger looking than the girl I was talking to my first day in town, turned to me and said, "'And what can I get for you today, sir?' I shook the cobwebs loose and surprised myself when I said, Nothing. Excuse me, sir? Uh, I'm sorry, did I say nothing? Uh, yes, sir, you did. I thought about it a second. Yes, nothing. I looked at the puzzled people behind me in line. I stepped aside and smiled. I took my place at the back of the line. When I got to the front again, the girl who waited on me the first day, who I harangued about Mrs. Baird's bread, stepped up. She smiled with the recognition of corporate success that a repeat customer always inspires. Hi, good to see you back. Yes, I said. Uh, I'm the one who just ordered nothing. Well, have you figured out what you want? Not really. I just realized I started to come to this Starbucks about five years ago to get my mother sweet rolls for breakfast. And now she's passed on. The girl behind the counter interjected. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, yes, thank you. I continued. So I realized I didn't need anything to eat. And I'm just recovering from heart surgery. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. The heart surgery was a good thing. But it means I can't have coffee and I don't really feel like paying two fifty for a tea bag and a cup of hot water. So I really want nothing. 
Both girls behind the counter were looking at me like I was the raving lunatic that I was doing a very good job impersonating. I continued to slog through the impenetrable verbal forest I'd planted. What I meant to say was, why I am in line, was to say, thank you. Despite the fact that I don't want anything, I'm here. By habit. A habit partially made by your kindness to my mother and to me in the past. And for that, thank you. The girls were unsure as to whether they should be touched or call security. I stepped out of line and wandered over to the coffee bar. I was wide awake now. It was good to know that public embarrassment works as well as an espresso. It seemed to be a heart-healthy way to start your day off with a jolt. A woman in her 40s with a steaming latte came over to me. She smiled and spoke in confidential tones. I was here the other morning and couldn't help overhearing. You were talking about the bread? Yes, ma'am. I will never forget Mrs. Baird's. I lived in the apartments that used to be behind the shopping center. We never had air conditioning. In the summer, we had to open all of our windows. The smell of the bread around midnight was so wonderful. My husband and I joked that we should have named our little girl Whole Wheat. (laughs) She laughed and looked across the street to the vacant lot. They tore it down a couple months ago. It went down quick, too. It was there one day. Then came the bulldozers and the wrecking crew, and then it was gone. Anyway, it was nice to hear you talk about it. Yes, ma'am, I said. She walked away and called back to me. These young people don't know what they missed. I sat laughing to myself. This may have to be my last trip here. When you become the crazy guy at Starbucks, it's time to go. I drove back to the house to pick up Dad for another day at the Deadman Center, then to the bank to eat popcorn and to make a pilgrimage to the scale that weighs you light. As crazy as it all was, I knew that this was a day I should cherish. I got home. Dad was at his machine looking at the weather reports. He asked if I got my Starbucks. I told him, not today. He said, Stephen, come on back here and help me with this. Yes, sir. I followed Dad back into his closet. I get so frustrated. I can't see anything. Everything has to be in its place or I can't find it. I have no idea what this is. Is this something important? I found it here in this stack of papers. Dad handed me an old prescription pad with the name Ray Nitschke on the front page. I couldn't breathe. I tried to talk, but I couldn't. Is this anything? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It is. It is. It's the autographs of the Green Bay Packers. I'll take it back with me. Well, how do you like that? It must have been here for years. And you found it, Dad. You found it. Here's a trivia question. What happened to the original Ten Commandments? The first set, the one that Moses threw down in a rage and broke into pieces. According to the Talmud... They were kept in the ark along with the new set. Just because they were broken, it doesn't mean they weren't holy. That night we watched Deal or No Deal. I was headed back to L.A. the next day. A commercial dad said, Stephen, tell me a story. Tell me a story about the good old days. I started to tell him a story from my childhood that he missed. I told him about the Dangerous Animals Club and Billy Hart and our two pet snails. Dad laughed and shook his head and said he had no idea any of this even happened. 
I told him it did. He said, you know, Stephen, tomorrow I won't remember any of this. I said, it's okay, Dad. We'll remember it tonight. That was Gone, a series of stories by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, would you like to tell people where they can find more of your work on the internet this week? Well, David, I think if we go to stephentobolowsky.com, that's spelled T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y, the Russian spelling, you'll be able to see not only my blog, but be able to have uh, gateways into getting cautionary tales, into getting uh, Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party and the Dangerous Animals Club, David. Right, the newest forthcoming book by Stephen from Simon & Schuster out in September. Also, I want to point out that Stephen will be performing live at the Moore Theater on October 13th uh, in Seattle, Washington. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of The Tobolowsky Files. We'll see you later. Adios! Adios!